It is a joy to be with you all. Uh, I uh, have been working at Nine Marks now as the executive director there for 22 months. Before that, I had the privilege of um, working in, in Louisville at a church there, Clifton Baptist Church, where Booney was at, so it was fun. I uh, served there as the pastor of administration and children and families, and uh, I never thought that I'd actually, when I was going to seminary as well, I never thought that I'd, I'd be coming back to Capitol Hill Baptist Church, which is where I had come from. I was converted there, and, uh, but uh, in the Lord's kindness, he called me back to, to work at Nine Marks, which is a ministry of CHBC. Um, I just want to take one minute to tell you a little bit about, about the ministry. Um, it, uh, it's, a, it's a fun story how it started. Actually, Mark Dever was studying abroad in, uh, in, in England, working on his Ph.D., and he had, he had planted a church in Massachusetts where he was at seminary. And that church was looking for a new pastor. And so they wrote Mark in England, and they said, Hey, Mark, um, we need a new pastor. What, what should we do? And he wrote back a, a letter in 1993, and he said, Well, unfortunately, you can't go to your local state Baptist association because they're liberal. They don't believe the gospel. They're not going to help you find the right man you need. He said, What you need to do is you need to find a man, who's ca- a pastor, who's characterized by these nine things, uh, a commitment to expositional preaching, uh, a commitment to biblical theology, a commitment to, to the gospel, because God, God's word is, is central to the church. And through that, then, number four, a commitment to a biblical understanding of conversion and then evangelism, and then a, a biblical understanding of membership and discipline, and then discipleship and growth, and then finally a biblical understanding of leadership, kind of the head of that, of that body. So that's, that's where the nine marks came from. Uh, and in a sense, it was, it was Mark writing as a pastor to this congregation in Massachusetts. But uh, what, it, what it became is, is a biblical model uh, for, for healthy churches. Um, three years later, Mark started at Capitol Hill Baptist Church, and the church administrator was looking for some newsletter content, and he found these these nine ideas, they turned them into nine articles, made nine months of, of newsletters, so the administrator was happy. Well, anyway, that, that, that newsletter became a, a, a booklet. That booklet became a series of sermons on the nine marks, and that uh, sermon series became a book, Nine Marks of a Healthy Church. And the ministry was officially founded in 1998 by Matt Schmucker, the church uh, administrator, pastor there, and the original executive director of, of Nine Marks. So uh, our vision at Nine Marks is a very simple one. We want to see churches that radiate the character of God, that, that's, that, that display his love, his glory, his purity, his unity uh, to the world. Uh, and our mission, kind of how we get there, is we seek to, to um, basically just create resources and host events that help church leaders and churches kind of understand this biblical vision and then kind of take steps to build those healthy churches. Uh, I love working at Nine Marks because my heart is to pastor. Uh, the Lord called me. You'll hear my testimony shortly. The Lord called me from um, the private sector to pastor, and that's what I thought I was going to do. That's what I was doing at Clifton. I was at seminary. But uh, I never expected that he'd call me kind of to the, to the back lines of, of the war, so to speak, to be at the, the Nine Marks Pentagon in Washington, D.C., uh, rather than being on the front lines of pastoral ministry like Samuel and, and you guys. But I love coming to, uh, to churches uh, who, who are like-minded sister churches, partners in this, in this great commission that we have together. Uh, because my heart, like y'all's heart, is to see God glorified, to see the great commission fulfilled. Um, and we believe that there's no better way to do that than that churches that radiate the gospel. So let me, let me uh, pray for us again, 
and, uh, and then we will jump into our sermon. Let's pray together. Father, we rejoice in the gospel promise that the blood of Jesus cleanses us from all sins and we have fellowship with one another. And so, Lord, we pray right now that you uh, give us wisdom, uh, that you give us your spirit, uh, and that you give us joy as we see this biblical vision of the church. Uh, we pray that uh, you be glorified in this time. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. We'll start with a question. What's the first thing that comes to mind when you think about the church? Is your impression of her something positive? Is it negative? Is it indifferent? Or is it kind of a combination of all the above? Now, what if you, what if you went out of this building today and, and you asked your, your family or your, your co-workers, your friends, what they thought about the church? How would they respond? Would she be something beautiful in their sight? Or would she be something that's barely even noticeable? You know, uh, growing up in Houston, Texas, uh, I grew up in a non-Christian family. Um, grew up going to the Unitarian Church. So my mom had a PhD. She was a teacher of teachers. And my dad was a lawyer. They had both kind of been self-made uh, professionals. Uh, they gave us an idyllic childhood. Um, never had to work. Went to the best schools. Got to travel a lot. And uh, as a good Unitarian, my mom, when I was in eighth grade, took me to the, to the Baptist church, the Methodist church, the Presbyterian church, a Jewish synagogue on Friday nights. I remember that one. The Roman Catholic Mass. And then she said, okay, um, I've done my job as a good Unitarian mother. I've, I've shown you all the, all the past, uh, all the face out there. You get to choose. Because, you know, Unitarian is, is basically rational deism. Your reason is the ultimate authority for what you decide. And uh, loving myself and my own reason, I chose me. Uh, I, I chose reason. Uh, I became enamored in high school with a, um, a philosopher called Ayn Rand, uh, uh, she wrote a book called Atlas Shrugged, or Fountainhead. It's, um, it's a movie now. And basically, again, it's rational egoism. You know, she says, there's only one God, and it is I. And because I had no reason to doubt my reason, it, it made sense to me. So I, I, uh, I embraced reason. And, you know, sadly, most of the, uh, like I said, I had gone to a bunch of churches in middle school and high school. I even did Young Life, and I went to, there's a couple big Baptist churches there. When I remember one of my friends invited me. On, on, the, on, the, on, the, on the youth group trips. I did those, mainly just because some of my friends were doing. And sadly, most of the churches that I saw growing up in Houston, um, like most of the marriages, actually, I saw growing up were better pictures of hell than heaven. Um, and by that, I mean that there was nothing distinct. There was nothing salty. There was nothing attractive um, now, in hindsight, as, as a Christian, now I look back on, on those churches in Yemen Young Life, and I think those leaders were genuine Christians, and I think they, they shared the gospel. But, you know, I remember hanging out with my Christian friends in high school, and what was going on at Young Life afterwards was no different than what was going on at the high school party on Friday night. Now, again, I didn't care. I wasn't a Christian. But to me, Christianity was at best hypocrisy. Um, and then, as again, as I, as I drank the, the Kool-Aid of rationalism, and I started reading the papers and and, you know, every time I saw a church or a pastor in the newspaper, it was usually with the words financial extortion or sexual immorality. Christianity went from just being hypocrisy to just being outright deceptive 
delusional and dangerous. I got angry um, at the religion. I got angry at the church, and I, I, I embraced reason even more. 1993, my twin brother and I, we graduated from high school, and uh, we went off to Georgetown University. We both had big plans to be international businessmen. Georgetown has a good school of foreign service, so that's where we went. Hard, you know, capital of the free world, and uh, the, you know, the gateway to, the, to, to international business. And uh, that year, though, things fell apart in my family. Dad, uh, my dad, like I said, he was a lawyer, um, ended up going bankrupt, and that tr- uh, lost his law practice, and that triggered a bipolar disorder, a mental illness, and um, and then and then he committed adultery, and blamed it on my mom, and it was just a mess. And then so so bankruptcy, mental illness, uh, adultery that that then led to divorce, um, and then and then my sister, four years who's four years younger than me, got raped, all within a period of about two or three years. These, these things happened. Um, and I looked at this. I looked at this world, and I looked at my reason. Reason didn't work. Couldn't solve it anymore. So reason went out the window. I adopted the eat, drink, be merry, work hard, play hard philosophy, kind of whimsical nihilism, right? You know, life doesn't make sense. I'm just going to love my friends, love my family, and live a pleasure-centered life. And uh, I did it really well. Actually, my junior year, this kind of all came down my junior year in high in college, sorry, and I was studying abroad in South America in Santiago, Chile. Had to get my first job ever so as a junior, so I started working as a bartender. I was studying abroad in the day, uh, studying you know, at the university in Santiago, Chile in the day, and then working at night uh, as a bartender, which was great. I kind of joke, you know, I, that's how I learned Spanish, um, bartending, because you, st- you talk in the language that people speak, and you talk about everything. And uh, and, you know, yesterday I was able to do a nine marks workshop in Spanish, so the Lord redeemed that, right? That's <laughs> praise God. But, but um, during that junior year, my mom moved to Washington, D.C., and she started attending uh, Capitol Hill Baptist Church, and she, and she became a Christian. She and my sister became Christians, started attending CHBC. Uh, so uh, we come back, my brother and I, from Chile, our junior year, finish up our senior year at Georgetown. I'm waiting tables, bartending in Georgetown as well continued to do very well at living my pleasure-centered life, and uh, graduated in May of 97 and moved in with mom on the Capitol Hill. And we've always been a close family, even as non-Christians, loved mom, wanted to encourage her. So she, she said, hey, can we start just going to church together and having brunch? And it actually worked. It was the one time of the week that we were all together. So we started doing that. And I started attending Capitol Hill Baptist Church in uh, May, of ni- uh, May of 97. And uh, what was interesting about that church is it was very different than anything I had ever seen growing up. Um, immediately, from the first Sunday that I walked in, I noticed that there was, there was just a, a corporate love and a purity and a unity that I had never seen before. Seeing the way they loved my mom, seeing the way they loved me. Uh, and Mark Dever, I'd been there about two years now, and Mark was, was an anomaly to me. I, I, kinda, I, couldn't, I couldn't reconcile um, or couldn't reconcile place of him in my rationalistic worldview because he was he was you know, he was a Southern Baptist fundamentalist preacher who grew up in Kentucky. Okay, that was fine. I got that. But then he was articulate, intelligent, and had a PhD from Cambridge. And I, I couldn't reconcile that. How do you, how do you have an uh, articulate, intelligent Southern Baptist fundamentalist preacher? I, I, you know, in my rationalistic worldview, I had no category for that. And my mom, knowing, knowing that uh, I consider myself a philosopher, she wisely, very thankful that Lord gives everyone a mom, very uh, wisely said, hey, Ryan, don't you think that that for the sake of your intellectual integrity, before you reject Christianity, you should understand what you're rejecting. And I said, well, that makes sense. What better person to study Christianity with than Mark Dever? So Mark Dever and I, in the summer of 97, 
started going through the Gospel of Mark. And it took about a year because I had tons of questions. And Mark would give me books and would have long debates. But over that year, uh, as, as that church, just their corporate witness, I saw them love me and, and, and um, saw them just saw, saw their lives. And intellectually became convinced that Christianity was true. And existentially, the more I was embracing this world, the more surreal uh, everything was becoming. Ecclesiastes was the only book that made sense to me as a non-Christian. Because I, I, again, I had maximized the five senses. And it was just, it was meaningless. And Mark took me to the end. He said, uh, Ecclesiastes, he said, see, Ryan, it's, it's the next life that brings life to this, that brings, you know, meaning to this life. It's the afterworld that colors and grounds this world. You know, the conclusion of the matter in Ecclesiastes. Fear God and keep his commandments, for this is the whole duty of man. And that made sense to me. And anyways, that was the linchpin. And that kind of evidentialist argument for the resurrection. And I remember February 98, the last book I read as a non-Christian, uh, English lawyer makes the case for the resurrection. And he says, okay, what's your verdict? Either Jesus Christ rose on Easter day or he didn't. And he said, realize how you answer that question, excuse me, how you answer that question about the resurrection will affect how you answer every other question for the rest of your life. Because either Jesus Christ is Lord and you have to, answer the questions of life according to, to his will, or your Lord, Jesus is just crazy, or a lunatic, or a liar, and you can answer the questions of life however you want. And it was the first and probably last time I was speechless. I had no answer, and the Lord converted me in the February of 98. And uh, I go and tell Mark, uh, you know, I wrote a prayer. I didn't even know how to pray. I just wrote, I wrote so I wrote a letter. I said, right there at the cafe on Capitol Hill, I said, Lord, not my will, but yours. And, uh, I go and I read this letter to Mark, and he brings in the staff, and they all pray for me, and Mark, and then uh, they give me hugs. Everyone's crying. I'm like, wow, this is crazy, but it was, it was good crazy, and, uh, and uh, Mark gets the staff out, and his first words to me as a Christian, just the two of us are, now, Ryan, just because you've prayed this prayer and said that you're a Christian doesn't necessarily mean you're a Christian. He said, time will tell, and at first I was like, what, what are you talking about, but it was actually really helpful. He explained to me repentance, biblical repentance. He said, now, choosing to be a Christian is costly. And you need to count the cost. I, mean, I was living with my girlfriend, and you just, it was very, a very worldly life. And he said, now it's worth it. It's joyful. It's the best decision you're ever going to make. And you, I cannot tell you the blessings you'll receive, but count the cost. Now it's good, because so, it took me about three months to, to clean up the big clunky public sins, and I was baptized in May of 1998. And as I grew in the church, and I learned verses like 1 Peter you know, 2 verses 10 to 11, it says, live such good lives among the pagans that though, they, that though they accuse you of doing wrong, they see your good deeds and glorify God on the day he visits us. And I just realized, you know, that's just Peter echoing Jesus' own words in Matthew 5, you know, where he calls the church to be, you know, a city on the hill, you know, a, a light uh, in the darkness, to be salty, distinct. Uh, I came to realize that the church is to be a display of God's glory a display of his love, his purity, and his unity. And I discovered as well, in a way that I hadn't for the first 23 years of my life, the blessings of God and the gospel in the local church, and the beauty of being born again and having fellowship with one another. Now, unfortunately, this isn't everyone's experience in the church. In America, even among Christian evangelicalism, the local church is at best just assumed, but often forgotten as a central part of the Christian life. So, for example, many college students don't usually go to church because, honestly, the parachurch ministries on campus are better and more fruitful for their own individual discipleship. 
or we graduate from college and, and then we just get too busy or we got to move to a new city or a new place to find, take a job and there's, there's no good churches around. And honestly, again, we can find better ways to grow and minister in our own discipleships than the churches that we've experienced. But the Bible, especially the New Testament, paints a different picture. The scriptures point to the church as the most powerful weapon in the arsenal of the army of the Lamb. If you can unlock, if we can unlock the power of a corporate gospel witness, this is the most powerful way, the most fruitful means to fulfill the great commission and the great commandment. I mean, uh, imagine it, as God's word is proclaimed, it goes out from the pulpit into the, into, the, into, the, into the body of Christ, you guys, and that word reverberates in your lives as you go out those doors and you scatter into the world and you go into your workplaces and you go into your families, you go into your, your friendships, lunches and breakfasts, and this word just acts as a powerful light in the darkness, this is true power. In Paul's letter to the Ephesians, we see an astounding picture of this power, a beautiful portrait of God's new society, the church, living together and fulfilling God's purposes as non-believers are converted and as believers are built up and as God is glorified through the communion and the life together of this new society that he creates through the gospel of Jesus Christ. So as your guest preacher, my heart's desire is to simply encourage you with this biblical vision of the local church. And then at the end, I want to highlight some blessings, some tangible blessings that come to your discipleship as you embrace and submit to this biblical vision of the local church. So to that end, we're going to go to Paul's letter to the Ephesians to capture God's picture of the church. And I want us to see five things about this new society of God, the church from Ephesians. First, its foundation. Second, its construction. The purpose of this new society. The results. And then finally, the power underneath God's new society. Now friends, this is an expositional overview of the whole book of Ephesians. So yeah, we're going we're gonna to kind of run through all six chapters. So if you think of this as kind of like a big house tour, we're not going to do the room-by-room room tour. We're pretty much going to run down the hallways and knock open the doors and peek our heads in, but this won't be the slow tour. We're trying to get the big picture here. Let me encourage you uh, later this week, maybe even today, to go back and read this, letter, uh, read this letter carefully. You can do it in 20 to 30 minutes and just reflect kind of uh, uh, carefully, slowly uh, on, on this vision of the church. But right now, we're just going to do the high-level one. So let's go ahead and uh, start in Ephesians 1. You can turn there. And in chapter 1, we see the gospel foundation upon which God builds his new society. Let's go there now. I'm going to start reading the first 10 verses. Paul, an apostle of Christ Jesus by the will of God, to the saints who are in Ephesus and are faithful in Christ Jesus, grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places, even as he chose us in him 
before the foundation of the world, that we should be holy and blameless before him. In love, he predestined us for adoption as sons through Jesus Christ, according to the purpose of his will, to the praise of his glorious grace, with which he has blessed us in the beloved. In him, we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of our trespasses, according to the riches of his grace, which he lavished upon us in wisdom and insight, making known to us the mystery of his will, according to his purpose, which he set forth in Christ as a plan for the fullness of time to unite all things in him, things in heaven and things on earth. Beloved, Ephesians is a beautiful picture of reconciliation. So first, vertically, Christ reconciles all creation to himself and to God. And then secondly, horizontally, Christ reconciles all believers, both Jew and Gentile, to one another, and he does it through the church. The power driving this reconciliation is the gospel of Jesus Christ, the good news. And that's what we see here in these opening verses. Paul gives us the foundation for our hope, the foundation of this new society, which are the spiritual blessings we have in Christ, the gospel. And notice that in verses 11 through 14, the fruit of this gospel for us. Let me read verse 11. In him we have obtained an inheritance, having been predestined according to the purpose of him who works all things according to the counsel of his will, so that we who were the first to hope in Christ might be to the praise of his glory. In him you also, when you heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation, and believed in him, were sealed with the promised Holy Spirit, who is the guarantee of our inheritance until we acquire possession of it to the praise of his glory. My friends, the gospel is our only hope. It is the singular mark that defines the true Christian and the true church. It is the one non-negotiable. Why? Well, because God always creates. God always saves through his word, through the word of the gospel. From Genesis 1, where God speaks all of creation into being, to, to John 1, where that word becomes flesh and lives among us, God always creates, God always saves through his word. That's the pattern of the Bible, from Genesis to Revelation. That's why the gospel is essential. There's no other way to be saved. There's no other way to have a biblical church, a supernatural community of redeemed sinners actually living together in peace for the glory of God. The gospel is good news, my friends, and it's foundational to God's new society. You see, God is the holy and just creator of everything, of the universe. And he made us in his image to be a reflection of that holiness and that justice and that power of creation. Yet we rebelled against him. Yet in his kindness, he sent his son, Jesus Christ, to take the penalty that we deserve. So condemned, Jesus stood in our place. Though he had no sin, he became sin for us. 
that we might become righteous and declared not guilty, innocent for our rebellion in God's sight. And this gift of undeserving grace is offered to all who repent of their sins and believe that Jesus Christ is Lord. Jesus meets us at the intersection of darkness and light, and he invites us into the household of God to be adopted as his children into the church if we trust and follow him. This gospel is the sole factor that drove Paul. For this he labored and toiled to present everyone mature in Christ. And this gospel is central to a biblical understanding of the local church. It's the foundation of everything Paul says and does. And you can see the purpose of all this there at the end of chapter 1 in Ephesians, verses 22 through 23. Let me read those. And he put all things under his feet and gave him as head over all things to the church, which is his body, the fullness of him who fills all in all. See, you see the purpose. It's clear there in verse 22, right? To build the church. In verse 23, to be his body, the fullness of God. So in God's economy, the gospel serves as the foundation on which he builds his new society, the church. So how then does God build the society? How does he do it? Well, he creates it himself. And that's what we see in chapter 2, in Ephesians 2. Go ahead and look there. The first creation is in the lives of individual Christians. You and I as Christians now have a new identity in the gospel of Christ. And it has nothing to do with our works or our worth. That's what we see in verses 8, 9, and 10. Let's read those together. I'll read. For by grace you have been saved through faith. And this is not your own doing. It is the gift of God, not a result of works, so that no one may boast. For we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. And so, so what happens? Well, God works through Christ to use us to construct the church as a display of his glory and power. That's what we see in the rest of Ephesians chapter 2. Let me just look at verse 13. Chapter, uh, chapter 2, verse 13. We're going to just jump through some verses here. Verse 13, but now in Christ Jesus, you who once were far off have been brought near by the blood of Christ. Verse 14, for he himself is our peace who has made us both one and has broken down in his flesh the dividing wall of hostility. Okay, jump down to verse 18. For through him we both have access in one spirit to the Father. So then... You are no longer strangers and aliens, but you are fellow citizens with the saints and members of the household of God, built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets, Christ Jesus himself being the cornerstone, in whom the whole structure being joined together grows into a holy temple in the Lord. In him you also are being built together into a dwelling place for God by the Spirit. So you see there the gospel there in verse 13 through the blood of Jesus brings us into a new supernatural community of peace. It gives us a new identity and it makes us citizens, makes us members of the household of God. And through Christ, the cornerstone, God constructs his new society. Paul calls it a building, a, a structure, 
a holy temple. Are, are you beginning to see the picture here of the church that Paul is painting? God lays the foundation in the gospel. He constructs this new society himself, the church, the dwelling place of God. And then what's the purpose of this new society? Well, that takes us to chapter 3. Let's go ahead and jump forward to chapter 3. In chapter 3, verse not, the first nine verses, Paul just lays out his credentials, his authority to say the things that he says and does. And then he goes on to say the purpose of God's new society right there in verse 10. That the world might know the multifaceted wisdom of God through the church. Let's, let's read verses 8, 9, and 10 together. Ephesians 3, verses 8, 9, and 10. To me, though I am the very least of all the saints, this grace was given to preach to the Gentiles the unsearchable riches of Christ and to bring to light for everyone what is the plan of the mystery hidden for ages in God who created all things, so that through the church the manifold wisdom of God might now be made known to the rulers and authorities in the heavenly places. Okay, that phrase, through the church, is an amazing phrase, right? God's going to think about how he should display his wisdom to the world. Okay, if you asked me, I would say, through the resurrection of Jesus Christ, or through the glorious gift of salvation. But God says, hmm, now, now, I do think all those things display God's wisdom and character, but here he's saying it's going to be through the church I'm going to display my manifold wisdom to the world. So that means God's going to use fallen, sinful people like me to display his wisdom to the world. That's amazing. My friends, I believe that this verse, Ephesians 3.10, serves as the pinnacle of this letter. It's the centerpiece. God displays his wisdom to the world. You jump down to verse 21. Paul further underscores the purpose of this new society, to bring glory to God, the Father, in the church, and in Christ for all generations. Let me just go ahead and read that, verse 20 and 21. Now to him who is able to do far more abundantly than all that we ask or think, according to the power at work within us, to him be glory in the church, and in Christ Jesus throughout all generations, forever and ever. Amen. So do you see the significance of all this? What is the church? The church, it, it's an outpost of heaven. It's the very dwelling place of God. So this means that we, the church of King Jesus, are an embassy for the kingdom of God. You know, I love working in Washington, D.C. because I, I, I live on the hill and I can walk to work and every day I walk by the U.S. Capitol and the Library of Congress and the Supreme Court and I, it's, it's absolutely beautiful. The architecture, the history, the power. And it's a great way just to be reminded to pray for the government. But I love when I walk into Capitol Hill Baptist Church that I'm walking into the one embassy in town whose king is immortal, invisible, God-only wise, the one government who will not default on its on its loans, on its economy. You see, we, the church of Christ, are ambassadors representing King Jesus on earth. So our faith is not ultimately about us. It's not about our best individual lives now. No, it's about us together to be a display of His glory. My friends, this vision of the church 
It's not mine. It's not nine marks. It's not, it's not Mark Devers. This vision of the church, it's God's. It's his plan. It's for our good and for his glory. And what's the result? Well, it results in disciples being made. Disciples who walk in a way that is worthy of God and his glory. So that's, that's the summary of Ephesians 4 and 5 right there. That's what we see, the results. Look at just uh, Ephesians 4, 1. Therefore, I therefore, a prisoner for the Lord, urge you to walk in a manner worthy of the calling to which you have been called. Okay, and then just jump over to chapter 5, same verse, verse 1. Chapter 5 just reinforces this same idea that we saw in verse 4. Chapter 5, verse 1. Therefore, be imitators of God as beloved children and walk in love as Christ loved us and gave himself up for us, a fragrant offering and sacrifice to God. So, so do you see what God is doing here? Through the power of the gospel, God is constructing a new society to be a display of his glory. Its foundation is the gospel. It is not our works, but the work of Christ, Jesus Christ on the cross. And the result, though, is good works in us. It's the good works of the body of Christ. So evangelism, bringing non-Christians to Christ. And discipling, presenting, uh, you know, presenting Christians mature in Christ, helping them grow. That is the result of this new society that God creates. And then Paul ends in Ephesians 6 with the power of, driving all of this. In Ephesians 6, 10 and forward, we see that Paul ends where he began. The power of all this is God. It's his strength. It's his armor. In him we stand and find our power for the mission to which we've been called. And do you see Paul's final prayer? Okay, here's Paul, the world's greatest evangelist after Jesus Christ, okay? And what's his last prayer? How does he finish his letter? Go to verse 18, the second part of verse 18. To that end, keep alert with all perseverance, making supplication for all the saints, and also for me, that words may be given to me in opening my mouth boldly to proclaim the mystery of the gospel, for which I am an ambassador in chains, that I may declare it boldly as I ought to speak. Oh, beloved, may God give us this same power to proclaim the gospel as boldly as the Apostle Paul did. So there it is, a, a biblical vision of God's new society, the church. Whew, I know, it's kind of a, we ran through a lot there, but... Uh, but I hope, that, I hope that's helpful. I hope you see its foundation, its construction, its purpose, its results, and its power. So the question then is, well, what does this mean for us? What does this mean for me as an individual Christian? What does this mean for me if I'm not a Christian? What does this mean for us as a local church? Here it is. For Christians, at its simplest, this means that you should covenant with a healthy church, a biblical church, a church that preaches the gospel for your good and God's glory. That is, the local church is to be the center 
the hub of your Christian discipleship. It's God's plan to bring him glory. You're his bride, but it's a you plural. So you should join and commit to a local church out of obedience to Scripture. The main idea here is simply this, that if you're a Christian, God's purpose in saving you was that you might bring him glory through the life that you live in communion with other Christians. If you do not join yourself with a body of believers in order to live that out, you have actually failed to live out what the Bible says is absolutely fundamental to what it, mean, what it means to be a Christian. It is not about you or me individually. It is about you and me as part of a church community bringing glory to God. I believe that's the weight of what Paul is saying here in this letter to the Ephesians. And I, and I pray that it bring you great encouragement, both individually and corporately, to see this amazing plan of God that he is performing for his glory, and he's using us. Wow. It's amazing. So let me give you four, let me give you four biblical reasons why you need to be part of a local church. These are the tangible benefits and practical applications for this biblical vision of the church, of covenanting together with a group of other believers in your area. American Express got it right. Membership has its privileges, but not just for this world, also for the next. Here they are. Reason number one, join a church for non-Christians. Join a church for non-Christians. You see, when Christians join a church and live faithfully according to God's word, they collectively help clarify to non-Christians what Christians what Christianity actually really looks like. As Christians commanded to love and follow Jesus' example, you see, we have the ability in our ministries to bring light into the darkness. And we live in a dark world. Just like Jesus did when he embraced the world's hurt and sorrow. This will encourage and serve your fellow believers as you live this way. But it will also be a wonderful light in the darkness to the unbelieving world. So, if you're an unbeliever here today, praise God that you're with us. We rejoice that you are here, and we hope that you feel welcome in the church. We, there's no other place we'd rather have you, and we hope you feel just loved and encouraged. But as an unbeliever, you're not allowed to be a member of the church. The church consists of Christians only, and we would love to talk to you about how you can become a Christian and taste and see that God is good through the fellowship that we have with one another. And, and Christians, this actually helps evangelism. It makes clear who is a Christian and who is not. It allows a clear light to shine in the darkness. This will be attractive in the best, most biblical sense of the, word, of the word. I mean, that was my testimony, right? Churches were confusing me because there was no clear distinction. And then I went to a church where there was a clear distinction. And the Lord used that to convert me. The church is the best evangelism program we have out there. It's God's program for evangelism and for discipleship, for presenting everyone mature in Christ. It is, like I said, the most powerful weapon in the army of the Lamb. If you can unlock its power, you have no better way to be a witness for Christ. Sadly, like, nuclear, like a nuclear-powered weapon in, in an army, often that energy can get into the wrong hands and be harnessed for evil, not for good. So join a church for non-Christians. Reason number two, join a church for Christians. Now, there are many practical aspects to this second reason. 
Um, I'm just going to give you three. Let me give you three blessings that come to the Christians to come to Christians when they covenant together. Number one, join a church for accountability. Beloved, God never intended for his children to live alone as solo Christians in this world. Hebrews 3, 12 through 13 is a great text to show this. Hebrews 3, listen as I read. Take care, brothers, lest there be in any of you an evil, unbelieving heart leading you to fall away from the living God. But exhort one another every day, as long as it is called today, that none of you may be hardened by the deceitfulness of sin. You see, by joining a church, we're saying, I can't do this by myself. I need help. I, I remember my first Friday as a new Christian, February of 98, I walk into Mark Dever's study, and I asked Mark, I'm kind of embarrassed that I even think I even asked Mark Dever this question, but I said, I said, hey, Mark, um, what do Christians do on Friday nights? You see, I was a, remember I was a bartender. I was waiting table. I remember what I used to do on the weekends, but I had now been converted. I had no idea what to do on Friday nights. I knew I couldn't do what I used to do on Friday nights. And Mark just laughed. He actually called Aaron Minnikoff, who was the pastoral assistant there. Uh, Aaron and I took a walk around the block. We started reading a book together. That week I joined Andy Johnson's Bible study. But, but the point is that church, just like they had walked with me, walked me to the gospel, then they walked with me to grow in the gospel. And you know what? 14 years later, I still need their help every day, every week. You cannot be held accountable if people don't know who you are. You have to be involved in the lives of others in order for us to help you out. So churches should consist of Christians who are willing to hold one another accountable, to be involved in the lives of, uh, to be involved in the lives of others, and if necessary, to discipline a fellow member who is unrepentant of sin. In this sense, the church acts like a spiritual assurance of salvation cooperative. Accountability is not a silver bullet. There will always be sin in the churches because the churches will always be full, full of sinners like me. But we sh and we should never overlook the abuses of accountability and of authority. If you see authority and accountability abused in your church, in marriages, in families, you should not tolerate it. Dishonors God, and it dishonors God's creation. But accountability and authority rightly exercised is a beautiful, beautiful thing. And sin does not thrive in the light. 1 John 1, 9. If we confess our sins, okay, so all you have to do is say, I'm a sinner and here's my sin. Listen to what happens. If we confess our sins, God is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. 1 John 1, 9. Beloved, my prayer for you all, my prayer for my church, is that we can create a culture where we learn to give and receive godly encouragement, not flattery. The world flatters and where we can learn to give and receive godly, constructive criticism, not harsh, destructive, hurtful criticism. That's what the world does. So join a church for accountability. Secondly, the, the second benefit for Christians is join a church for love, encouragement, and discipleship. 
What I mean here is basically very simple. Stronger and weaker Christians need one another. I remember, well, it's like 20 years ago now, but I was in high school, and uh, I, did, I did scouts, so we got to do an international scout camp one, one summer. It was really cool. So my brother and I fly over to London. Uh, we're driving out in the English countryside to go to this, this scout camp, um, and uh, I'd never been to England, never been in the English countryside before. Uh, I'd never seen a flock of sheep in my life. Okay, I'm from Texas, so I've seen a lot of longhorns, a lot of cows, but I'd never seen a flock of sheep before. Now, I thought that sheep were white, but they're not. So we, were, we were driving the countryside, and this whole flock of sheep literally just comes, they're kind of crossing the road, and so we just stop. I mean, because there's really, you know, you there's nothing you can do. You just stop. It was about 10 or 15 minutes, and we're, and we're watching, we were watching these, uh, these sheep uh, up close. Man, th first of all, they're, they're dirty. Uh, they're messy. Uh, they're stupid. It was so fun. I mean, you know, I was a high school kid, very immature. We were just laughing it up because these sheep, some were just walking along. A couple fell into the ditch, you know. Some, some were going the wrong way, you know. They, they were biting one another and snipping at one another. Uh, but what was interesting is after about 10 minutes or so, with, with the help of the shepherds and with the help of the sheepdogs, they all made it safely down the road and into the sheepfold. You see, my friends, that's us. We're, we're those dumb, dirty sheep that bite one another. We're, we're easily sway off the path and we fall into the ditch when we want something and we don't get it. We go the wrong way. But God, in His kindness, through His grace, by, by staying together in a flock, gets us down the road safely into the sheepfold altogether. What I'm saying is simple. That I and you are better stuck in the middle of a flock, even if it slows us down in our own discipleship and inconveniences our lives now. Why? Friends, if you know your own heart well, you know that it's actually more dangerous to be alone or on the edge of the flock because we're prone to wonder. It's true. I guarantee it. I've been a pastor. I've been a Christian now for 14 years. been a member of a church. And I've been a member of a healthy church, quote-unquote. By joining a flock of believers, you will be slowed down in your own life, and you will be inconvenienced greatly. But have you ever considered the fact that maybe God's plan is to slow you down so that you can lock arms with other believers and help speed them up. Older men and women in the faith are commanded by Paul to disciple and encourage younger Christians. Titus 2. Younger Christians are also called to care for and love older Christians. So in the church, there's no such thing as the individual Christian. God has bound us together as one body in Jesus Christ and commanded us to care for one another and to meet regularly together to that end. Hebrews 10, 24-25 is the best text I have on that one. Hebrews 10, 24. And let us consider how to stimulate one another to love and good deeds, not forsaking our own assembling together, as is in the habit of some, but encouraging one another and all the more as you see the day drawing near. 
That's why you need to be here on Sundays. You can't just do church over the internet or in your car because you need to gather and assemble to encourage one another. Not because you're proud and boastful, but because you're, like me, a dumb sheep who's going to fall in the ditch if you're just in bed at home watching something on the internet. We need to gather together. We're actually commanded to. We can encourage one another through good teaching on, on all these other ways. But we are commanded to gather as a church for this very end. Stronger and weaker Christians need to make their love for Christ definite by loving others in a purposefully committed fashion. So that means you cannot be anonymous. Remember the one another commands that Jesus and Paul give in the New Testament? There's about 35 or 40 of them if you write them out in a list. To love one another, to outdo and uh, honoring one another, there is no way you can fulfill these commands to love one another than one another's unless you're covenanting together in a local church. It's the only structure means that tangibly all these things are possible. So we should join a church for Christians because it helps us with accountability, with discipleship and encouragement and love, and then finally we should join a church to share responsibility among, among Christians. In 1 Corinthians uh, chapter 12, 13, and 14, we have the longest teaching in Scripture on the spiritual gifts. So in these chapters, the Apostle Paul teaches us clearly that our spiritual gifts are from God and that in order to share responsibility in the church and to build one another up. So for Paul, spiritual gifts, all that means is meeting the needs of the church and building others up. No spiritual inventory required. Now, of course, the Lord gives everyone unique gifts, and you need to use those gifts accordingly. But at the end of the day, if, if, if the church needs you to turn the lights on or open the doors or make, you know, or clean the fellowship hall out, that's your spiritual gift. And what a joy it is to serve in that way. Peter, the Apostle Peter, captures this same idea well in chapter 4, uh, um, 1 Peter 1, chapter 4, verses 10 and 11. He writes, As each has received a gift, use it to serve one another, as good stewards of God's varied grace. Whoever speaks as one who speaks oracles of God, whoever serves as one who serves by the strength that God supplies, in order that in everything God may be glorified through Jesus Christ, to him belong glory and dominion forever and ever. I love that phrase in 1 Peter 4, uh, God's varied grace. We just meditate on that phrase, varied grace. Our spiritual gifts are like a beautiful stained glass window that creates a glorious picture of unity amidst diversity as the gospel light shines through it. All of your lives together with the gospel shining through it presents this beautiful mosaic of God's varied grace. That's the purpose of your spiritual gifts, to build up the church. So that means that there is a place for every member to serve in the church, no matter how old or how young. There is a place for every member, and it is a joy to work together to figure out what that looks like. Beloved, what better way is there to make your love and responsibility concrete than to commit yourself to a local church where you can both be cared for and at the same time care for other Christians? So, the second reason to join a church is for Christians. It helps with accountability, discipleship, and sharing responsibility. Two more reasons. These are a lot quicker. Join a church for church leaders. 
You know, some churches claim to have thousands of members, yet only a small percentage of those members actually attend that church on any given Sunday. And I say this humbly and soberly, but what happened to those other members? For church leaders, this is a sobering reality, especially since both the Old Testament and the New Testament tell us that we, shep- uh, we pastors will give an account for every soul that's been entrusted to our care. Let me give you one example here. In Hebrews chapter 13, verse 17, in Hebrews, leaders are commanded to keep an account of those put under their care. I'll read it. Chapter 13, verse 17 of Hebrews. Obey your leaders and submit to them, for they are keeping watch over your souls as those who will have to give an account. Let them do this with joy and not with groaning, for that would be of no advantage to you. Again, on the final day of judgment, Scripture teaches here that we pastors will have to hold the hands of every sheep that has been entrusted into our care and give an account for them. How can a leader know who to lead and care for if its members don't come to church? It's a formidable yet glorious calling because it's exactly how our great shepherd Jesus Christ cares for us. And it's why he called every church to have godly leaders, to gather and protect the flock, to minister the word of God, and to equip the saints for the ministry. Beloved, this is a beautiful picture of God's kindness and his wisdom. This was my experience serving as an elder, as a pastor at at Clifton Baptist Church. Like I said, I've been a Christian now 14 years, and after being the husband of Tara Beth, my amazing wife, and being the father of my five children, um, existentially in terms of just my own Christian experience, the greatest joy I've had as a Christian has been, um, sweetest part, has been serving as an elder uh, with another godly group of men at Clifton Baptist Church. I've seen both the kindness and wisdom of God in giving a plurality of elders to each local church. From the joyful personal experience, to just the the joyful personal uh, friendships that I have, to the countless examples of how collective wisdom is so much better than my own wisdom, were I the only pastor of that church. Uh, I was, I was the, at one time I was the only full-time pastor, and then we got, we got us another full-time pastor. But I can't tell you how many times as one of the two full-time pastors that the church was often protected from the full force of my own wisdom as I was able to bring my recommendations to a group of godly elders who were able to refine and sharpen and make better the recommendations that I then went on and helped implement. But you just saw the kindness and wisdom of God through a plurality of other wise men. It protected me from both, on one extreme, being proud, hey, look at all the things I'm doing on my own as the pastor, but also protected me from getting overwhelmed and burdened. Oh my goodness, I'm the only guy who can do this. You just see the protection and kindness of God and the plurality of elders, of pastors. My prayer is that all of you, both the members and leaders alike, may have a similar testimony. It's part of God's vision for the local church. So friends, join a church for your leaders. Finally, join a church for God. That's the fourth and final reason. You know, it's interesting, if you look through the book of Acts, it is the Lord who adds people to their number, and being added to the Christian's number meant being identified as the church. The most striking illustration of this connection between God and the church takes place in Acts 9, in the story of Paul's conversion. 
Now at this time, he's actually going by the name of Saul. And Saul is on the road to Damascus. And he's going to Damascus to kill Christians and to persecute the church there. Jesus appears to Saul on the road to Damascus. And Saul falls to the ground. Now do you remember what Jesus said to Saul? His first words to the apostle who's going to take the gospel to the Gentiles. He, he does not say, Saul, Saul, why are you going to persecute those Christians? He doesn't even say, Saul, Saul, why are you going to persecute the church? He says, Saul, Saul, why are you going to persecute me? Jesus so clearly and so closely identified with the church that he refers to that congregation in Damascus as me. That's why I think Paul got his image of the church as the body of Christ. His first Christian conversation, I think, had that image in it. And then in Acts 20, it says that the church is the body of Christ and that God bought the church with his own blood. Beloved, I don't know all the bits of your life and how you've been brought up to regard the church. It might be like me. It's a bitter experience, a hurtful experience. The church has let you down. For that, my heart is broken. But in the New Testament, I can tell you that the church is regarded as the body of Christ, bought with God's own blood. This is what God is about. So many of the things that we understand to be Christian are not simply individualism, but are actually virtues that express themselves in relationship with one another. So ultimately, we want to be a part of a church for God. So my friends, there it is. A biblical vision of the local church and our life together. This picture is both a challenge and a comfort, isn't it? I mean, in one sense, it's a challenge because biblically, we have a clear responsibility for one another. But it's also a comfort because we know that we will be loved for, cared for, and prayed for by God's family. It brings tears to my eyes because that's been my experience for the past 14 years. I have tasted and seen that the Lord is good through the church. And it breaks me how much hurt and pain and darkness is out there. People find false solutions in this world that we live in. And most of the churches are just hurting the very witness that God has called them to be. And so people die, or they live deaths of, of loneliness and isolation. But that's not what we see here. My prayer is that at the least, you've begun to understand the beauty and the power of Christ in the church. May God give you the joy and the passion to continue the conversation with your pastors, with your family, with one another, for your good and for his glory. Let's pray together.